Let's go. Hello, and welcome to Sustain Open Source Design. Is it Sustain Our Design? No, it's Sustain Open Source Design. Yes, yes. Sustain Open Source Design. SOS. <laughs> what are you calling <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Sustain Open Source Design Podcast. Way We're in sunny Barcelona. There are skateboarders outside and there's some wonderful bells ringing uh, every so often. So... You're in the live version of the Sustaining Open Source Design podcast uh, today. We're at Penpot Festival. Penpot is a fantastic open source design tool. We are super excited to be here at the first Penpot Fest, listening to all the fantastic talks and making sure that design gets the attention that it needs in the open source space. Our first guest, oh gosh, I'm going to still do this wrong, Borstadt? I can just say it, Jan Borchardt. Amazing. Thank you so much. <laughs> So Jan is the co-founder and design lead at Nextcloud and the founder of Open Source Design and oh, co-founder. Sorry. One of the co-founders, yes. Yes, there are multiple co-founders uh, of Open Source Design and Open Source Diversity Communities. Jan, you gave a talk today at Penpot Festival. Would you like to tell us a little bit about the content of your talk? Yeah, so I talked today about the title was Five Essential Design Strategies, Open Source Design Strategies we use at uh, Nextcloud. And it basically focused on a bunch of the things that we do within Nextcloud to kind of put together design strategies that are good for a community, that work together with the community to solve design challenges, which are very specific to open source projects. Because there's a bunch of design challenges, of course, in any project. But yeah, I focused on specific ones, which are very specific to open source and decentralization and all that stuff. Let's hear one of those design challenges. Maybe you're the one that you find the most tricky. One is, I would say, sign up or like getting the thing actually, right? So Penpot is also a software as a service. So there you can sign up easily. So that's kind of solving the problem quite easily. Yeah, that, there's possible solution to the issue. We don't offer hosting for Nextcloud, for example. So we have a solution that we call Simple Sign Up, where we just partnered with a bunch of providers and we put them on a list. And when you sign up, you would just get recommended one of them, which is closest to you. We don't put like a long list or whatever. So you have like a paradox of choice, but it's just one possible solution. Amazing. I find this as a general topic really interesting and I'd love to hear your thoughts more on the idea or the concept of designers as strategists, because often we hear about the visual aspect of design. We hear a lot about product design, UX design and all this kind of stuff. And often the listeners of the Sustain Open Source Design podcast that are not themselves familiar with design have a limited view of what design is. And we've had a few speakers talk about design as a strategical intervention, a strategical presence love to hear more about how you developed that through your career. Yeah, I mean, actually, I have something also similar to that. Like one thing that I noticed is that a lot of designers also seem to do community management or community work, right? I mean, a lot of us who are sitting here are designers and community management sort of people. And I just find that very interesting. I guess it has to do with that we're very, very people focused. Yeah, we want to onboard people. We want to make it easy for people. And that is not only for the product, but also for the community as an easy way to onboard, not only that you can use what we work on, but that you get onboarded in the community that you contribute to. That's probably the answer to your question also. That is super in line with uh, what we work on as designers. 
Yeah, and tell us a little bit more about like the community work that you do. I know you have a couple of collectives uh, that you've been involved with. What role do you have there? What challenges have you seen? Yeah, what drives you to that work? One of the long-running collectives or communities I'm part of is uh, open source design. As was mentioned, this grew out of this sort of going to various open source conferences and meeting all these cool designers, but sort of also seeing that there's not so much communication going on. There's like people, like the in-group sort of that goes to all these open source conferences and who knows each other, but uh, it wasn't really like this community of designers, which was an in-group by itself. Yeah. So then we started that and yeah, the, the proper start was at FOSDEM 2015, where we did the first FOSDEM open source design track, which is still going on. It's very popular. Yeah, uh, I think basically everyone uh, of you has uh, spoken there by now and uh, many people have heard of it. And it's at FOSDEM, uh, one of the big open source conferences. We've had one at FOSAsia. So yeah, this is like one of the cool initiatives. And one of the things I like there is that it's sort of slow but steady yeah we're not like super aggressive about it yeah we're not like growing super rapidly and whatever but that's fine yeah we're around yeah and we're maybe a bit like sustain i'm not quite sure but like it's a it's a collective it's community everyone is invited i think open source design is such an interesting example to be spoken about in the context of sustaining because as you say it's a community that has for various reasons that i struggle to kind of really pin down it sustained itself reasonably well. Like it's, I'd love to hear more about like how you've seen it change and grow over the years and how you might want to see the design community. I'm loath to use the word improve, but how you would like to see it change or grow or what you want to see happen. One of the things that's, of course, an issue at the moment is like that the website looks very outdated. Yeah, It's, it's not necessarily a best phase for a design-oriented thing, right? But that's just something we need to work on, right? It sort of... That's the thing, gets the point across. And I think the important thing is that we constantly give value to people who need it, like with a jobs board, for example. Yeah? We connect people who need design for their open source projects and designers who want to contribute to open source. So that I think is one of the one of the key aspects. Then we have the forum where people can just link up. We organize the design track, which is like, yeah, who doesn't want to speak at FOSDEM, get an opportunity to do that. And we organize the investment. I mean, we have the domain. Yeah, we pay for the domain. It's hosted on GitHub pages. We do the Twitter and the Mastodon accounts. So it's like, yeah, it's time investment and stuff. But monetary investment is actually quite low, which is also why exactly we're looking at, yeah, where to spend the funds that we amass in Open Collective apart from printing stickers and stuff. So because it's all voluntary, it's quite sustainable. So you also had another initiative on diversity, and I know that that hasn't been growing as, as much or hasn't been thriving, but I also feel like you're bringing a lot of the diversity into open source design. So I know you've been to OSCA very recently. So do you want to tell us a little bit about like how you are growing in the kind of uh, majority world outside of the global north? I very much like to go to conferences like i mean I, I reduced generally going to conferences i have to say and and then covid came anyway but where i really often like to go to is yeah for example fast asia or oscar fest in lagos because it's so cool to see newer ish communities i mean by now it's not so new anymore right but at fosdem it's very established yeah it's very European, of course, yeah. And then you have the US conferences. I mean, I haven't been to a US conference in a while, but uh, yeah, it's 
very similar to FOSDEM-ish, as far as I remember. Yeah, I might be wrong, but this is why I like these, these other communities also. Like we've been to Indonesia three years ago, and that is like a sort of very different open source vibe there. It's like more hacking and, and more like fixing your local problems. And that's just what I like a lot. Also, my partner has been researching on that. She wrote her PhD on local problems and stuff like that. So it's a very interesting thing to meet all these people who do these things. And that just kind of yeah, also gives me ideas uh, on that. So I'm part of the open source design uh, group as well. And one of the things that I think is super cool to your point about increasing diversity and going to specific conferences is we used to have the most members on our GitHub teams in a European country. I think it was maybe Germany. And now the increase from communities across Africa has meant that the Nigerian team in the open source design GitHub outnumbers all of the other countries, almost all <laughs> of the other countries put together, which I think is fantastic. And it just yeah. goes to show you like, how important it is to support and recognize communities that are doing like that energetic work. But the question is, I would like to see designers go to more conferences for sure. And I think I've seen an increase. How do you think we can enable and get more designers within open source at more events that are vital for them to be at, do you think? Closed source design conferences, for example, is one thing that I've heard often, right? Like actual like IXDA events or like the sort of established design events. Would you think those are vital or you, would you say like developer events are vital? Gosh, we could probably have a whole other podcast about that very subject. <laughs> what do you think? Do you think those are vital for designers to be talking about open source in? How would you rate them? Or would you want us to continue like amassing at the FOSDEMs and the Oscars and the FOSASIAs and then other conferences of the... I mean, I think we were well represented there by now, I would mm -hmm. say, you know, because we got Oscar, yeah, we got FOSDEM, the Oscar of Europe, yeah, FOSASIA, the FOSDEM of uh, Europe or whatever, like uh, of Asia, whatever you want to call it, right, the, these big ones, maybe the like big proper design conferences is, is one other point, yeah, then more dev-focused conferences is another point. I think there's several arms to branch out and I think it's definitely good to not only keep in our open source uh, bubble. But that's the thing. I mean, that's also with the open source diversity community. The primary thing is like bringing people together who have the same interest. It's not necessarily like doing a new thing, but it's connecting what is already there that I think is already achieving quite a lot. So, Jan, tell us what was um, your favorite or favorite things about the Penbot Fest so far? Well, I mean, there's lots of things to name, I think. <laughs> I mean, the... Uh, There's uh, the, the amazing people from Penpot. Uh, I already met uh, Pablo and Andy uh, last week at, at Oscar Lagos um, or two weeks ago. Uh, and it was really, really cool. And then I was like, oh, wow, now I'm extra looking forward to Penpot Fest. And of course, this venue is amazing. I have to say the heat is a bit getting to me. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, otherwise it's great. Great talks. I really love that it's a single track conference so you can uh, see everything, focus on everything. And finally, where can we find you online? Mostly at my website, it's janc.borchardt.net, if you can spell it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, I also have Twitter and GitHub. I don't use Twitter a lot, uh, but uh, yeah, Mastodon as well. Don't use that so much as well. Great. But, we'll yeah. post those uh, links with the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Sustain Open Source Design podcast. We are still in sunny Barcelona. It's The sun's come back out. We're talking about the sun a lot when we introduce these podcasts because maybe as a person from the UK, I'm unfamiliar with the sun. 
Anyway, we're at lovely, fantastic Penpot Fest, which has been an absolute amazing experience so far. We have another fantastic speaker with us as our guest. But me, myself, my name is Errol, and with me on the hosting duties today is... Victory Brown. <laughs> awesome. So with us now, we have Elizabeth Oliver, who is the senior product designer at Zata. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you do at Zata and your experiences with design and open source so we can get to know you better? Yes, yeah, so I'm a, a senior product designer. Before I was working for a design system at Elastic, similar to Elastic, so it's like a database and actually the CEO is a former Elastic employee and a lot of people that moved from Elastic to this startup. So at Elastic, I was just working in the design system for four years and I started getting a little bit bored because I lost my creativity because the design system, all of the design systems are very similar. So at some point I was thinking, well, I need a new adventure, do something different. So I had like this offer to go to Zata and that I accepted right away because I could build new things. Uh, it's a startup in a very early stage and we're trying to reinventing the wheels for databases. And even like for as a designer, I can do, I'm doing almost everything because right now we're only two designers. So I'm doing PowerPoint presentations to logos, to UI, everything. Uh, also coding. So I, I feel that I have the freedom to pick what I want to do. One day, oh, let me fix the logo. The other day, I heard that someone needs a t-shirt, let me help with the design. The other day, they're struggling in the UI of the app. Oh, I can jump into the PR and help with code. So that's basically what I do. And then in my free time, I really like music and hip hop. And because I also like design and coding, so... I can spend my weekends doing music or doing like open source projects. So I have a few. Amazing. Wow. I've got so many questions because there's so much that you work on, Elizabeth. Well, the first question that I have is maybe a little bit of a boring one in that you mentioned a term which is design systems, which is what you used to work on. You're now in databases or working on database as well as other things. Some of our listeners may be unfamiliar with what a design system is and what makes them so boring. And I'd love to hear you talk more about what you found really frustrating about design systems and what they are. I was working for the Elastic UI. There is part of the, the Elastic, the company. We are only at some point two designers and one of the designers left. And at some point I was the only designer. And all the rest were like developers, engineers. And basically the design was very, we are in the very mature level of the design system. So to try to explain what is a design system, it's almost like a documentation for designers and developers, like with UI library, with some documentation, like with design, how to implement that design properly. And the idea is to try to maintain the consistency, the design consistency across a, a, a company. So. We share our brand assets, logos, icons, and also components. And then we have some guidelines. So everyone try to talk the same language. Also, like how we should write and all of these things. But the design system, we already had a lot of components. So we're not creating new ones. So at some point, my job and my colleague's job is like fixing bugs or dealing with the feature requests, 
or updating uh, old components with a new technology or so at some point one of the things that we're doing was basically upgrading because before we were using SAS and we decided to move to emotion so it's a work maybe of one year of work updating component by component converting SAS to and we try different things like can we outgrade like a tool that just translates the SAS to JavaScript, then we ended up just doing everything manually. And so at some point, my job every day was like convert a new component to emotion and try to fix a bug or dealing with the feature request. You've done really amazing stuff. And I can see how your first job got boring because I, I completely understand. I'm not very familiar with design systems, but within the open source space, I haven't found like most projects don't have design systems. So were you a part of the team that built it from scratch? And if you were, did you see the need for it? And what did you see as need for that? For example, this is a startup, but that uh, we are using Chakra UI. Okay. And for me, it was interesting. Like, okay, I start working there. There was one designer, the developers before having designers took the, this decision. But I was really happy because I was already, already using Chakra in my personal projects. So that was cool. And one thing that I like in Sharka, it's customizable. For example, the Elastic UI, our goal was to keep the Elastic brand. And we had a lot of feature requests, like, can we make this more customizable? And we are always saying no, because the idea was it's for Elastic products. It was at some point open source. Now it's not 100% open source. But the Chakra UI, it's different because it's the idea, it's you can use it, but you can easily customize the tokens. But I think at some point, after some time in a company would start growing, I think you start having the necessity to start building something from scratch. It always happens. And I'm already predicting that. We already have our own file called tokens.ts because me and my colleague Dave, we used to work together at Elastic and the way we work with color tokens, it's like you call primary or you call secondary color or success, danger. And in Chakra, you have to say red 0.500. So this creates some inconsistencies because one developer is implementing something and he picks one color or it's not the right color. So we start creating a way of making it easier for the developers so they don't have too many choices. And we are already start seeing that we going in the Elastic UI direction. And because we work together there for so long, we are already giving the same names, the same type of tokens. So I predict that at some point, or we move away from Chakra, or we keep using, but with a lot of customization on top of it. I think what I'm hearing in your journey is how important it is for designers to explore variety and creativity. It sounds like in your new role, you have that freedom and that ability to play. And with some of your personal projects, which I really want to hear more about, you have that opportunity to play. And I'm wondering how you cultivate that as a designer yourself, how you encourage that, but also how you could encourage that within the open source community as well. What would you like to see happen more? One thing is like I worked for so long, like with design system, but like on my social media or when I create my personal project, 
my projects are very different. Having this role, I never shared anything related with design systems because I think you have so many options and so you can pick whatever design system you like. But I like to share about uh, creativity and I couldn't find that at Elastic. When you work for big companies or when the design is established, you just follow patterns. And for so long, I wanted to have some kind of illustrations. And oh no, but we have a special brand team. We have these rules. And so in my personal time, okay, I create my own illustrations. So I have this project called uh, React Kawaii. They're basically Kawaii illustrations. And I try to make it easier for developers to use the illustrations. So React components and you call an illustration, for example, import ice cream. And then each illustration has a mood and you can say that ice cream, mood, happy, mood, sad. And also I have other, like the cassette tape, that is a project that I had maybe for more than four years. And they start in one way, the idea was to be an uh, iOS app. And the idea of this app, it was born because I like to do hip hop. And I had this idea, can I have like this application where I press play, there's a hip hop loop, and then I record my voice on top of that. So I decided to learn uh, how to do iOS apps and I realized it's too difficult. And then, okay, let me do with what I know that is like CSS, JavaScript, lately SVGs. So basically, when I try to do something creative, it's what I'm missing like in my life, like this example of cassette tape. It's an example of something that I wanted to do and I couldn't find in the market like a rap application, let's say. And that's it. So just to go back to the beginning about your journey, because before I moved to becoming a designer, I wrote some code. Did you start designing first before you learned to code or did you code and then transition or just decide to add? How did that movement happen? Yeah. I started developing first. And the reason for that was at the time, also because of the music, I was trying to promote my, my music. And I was doing my flyers, posters and social media. And at some point I wanted to have a website. So I used one free platform, then I moved to WordPress, then I wanted to customize it more. I couldn't, so I learned how to do a normal website with HTML and jQuery at the time. And then it was always like that. So the reason I learned to be a developer was because I wanted to develop things that I, I couldn't find anyone or I didn't have enough money <laughs> to pay for a developer. And at some point it became my job being a UI developer. But then this thing of full stack developers started and that's when I said no. I can't be a developer anymore because I, I like more the design part and they start becoming too difficult. And so I just moved to be only a designer. I have one last question as we come to wrap up. You mentioned that you've worked in smaller teams. You work with one other designer. Not to generalize, but a lot of people, designers, are in small teams with maybe one other designer or even by themselves. How do you feel connected to other designers? How do you go about gaining like that, those good vibes from like the design community? Are there places that you go? Are there events that you like to frequent or like online spaces that help you feel connected to other designers? 
I have more developers <laughs> are my friend than designers. Okay. I think also because for so long I was in the React.js community. Okay. And also because the type of design that me and my colleague do, it's like we code. When a developer open a PR, we, we say oh, we can help you and we go and we fix the design. We do the code. And at, at Elastic, it was the same. Almost every designer knows how to use GitHub, how to open a PR, how to do styles. And for so long, I was the, this type of designer. So just recently is when a friend of mine, uh, she wants to become a designer and she asked for my help. So it was the first time that I was like mentoring. And I came to the realization that I'm not the type of designer that she wants to be. And I tried to connect her with other designers. Like they're more into design. It takes all kinds of designers to build a design yeah. community. We yeah. need the developer designers, those that yeah. code, those that do research, like our lovely mm -hmm. Victory here. Actually, I'll hand over to Victory to ask this question. Is that cool? Cool, cool. Okay, so we're in Barcelona for Pempot Best. So how are you feeling? Or like, how would you describe your experience so far at Pempot Best? What do you like most or what do you like about it in Barcelona? I'm... Very impressed. I really like Barcelona. It's my second time here. And the weather, it's my type of weather. <laughs> I love the sun and also be near the sea. It's really cool. And I'm really impressed with Penpot because for so long, and I lived in Dublin for years. And at the time I was helping organizing some meetups, the UX meetup. And when I was connecting with designers, so it seems that I connected with some designers, but I always felt that I didn't belong at 100% because the other designers were more like, let's do UX, research, and, and my type of designer, let me jump without any research, anything. So I feel, well, I'm not a real designer, but here I was impressed because I could have conversations like about doing things with React and how to use the penpot to export SVGs and how people are trying to create animations. And I'm seeing a new type of designers here and it was cool. Just to add, you did amazing with the cassette design mm -hmm. and all yeah. that. Yeah, that mm -hmm. was really cool. So where can people find more of your fantastic personal projects and some of the stuff that you're doing online? Yes, yeah, so I have a website, mewkiamew.com. And basically there I have all my social media links, uh, some blog posts and some of my projects. Awesome. We'll put that link in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been amazing to hear about your journey. Thank you for sharing with us. And please feel welcomed by all designers in the design community. We are so happy that you're here from a fellow researcher. Hello and welcome to the Sustain Open Source Design podcast. We are still in Barcelona. It's still very sunny. It's still reasonably noisy outside. And we're here for Pempot Festival. We're having a blast at Pempot Festival and also talking to a, some amazing people on the podcast. We have a lovely guest with us today. And I'm one of your hosts, Errol Fox. And also we have Perry. So who we have today with us, we have Peter Hannekamp, and we're going to focus on open source strategy. And they work on growth and basically the whole funnel at Kaleidos, which is the company that maintains and manages and works on two different products, which is Pempot, Pempot Fest, yay, 
and also Tiger. So, Peter, if you'd like to tell us a little bit more about what you mean when you say growth and the whole funnel at these tools. Yes, when we are talking about growth, we're basically thinking about the part that is not product. To make a lot of users use your product, you need to have a great product. But there's a lot of things around it. So you first you first need to make people aware of it, find you, and then start using it, getting to know it, and get very active, and then maybe also become contributor and build out tools. So there's there's a whole range of things that comes after actually the product is built. So what we do is really try to get a lot of analytics and understanding. Are people knowing us? Are people signing up? Are people using it? Are people downloading it? And that we analyze and then we try to understand what do we need to, what intervention do we need to make either on the product side or marketing or anything else to change that. I don't know if this is a hard question or not, but or like a confrontational question, but Penpot is primarily for designers. It's a design tool for designing, although lots of people can use Penpot to do design work in and Tiger is a product management tool. I don't know how you would describe Tiger. I'd love to hear that. But what's been the hardest thing about reaching the audiences that you want to reach for both of these tools? So there were actually a lot of questions. Mm. <laughs> so first of all, I think that the audience for Penpot, in our view, are both designers and developers. Mm. Uh, however, we have chosen to first focus on designers. We believe that a design tool first needs to have designers before to be useful for developers. So that's why we have focused first to get designers in. And also with our background being an open source tool, we think it's actually easier to be recognized by developers. It's an easier connection. I think wh when we look at designers, what is actually difficult is to explain them the philosophy and the benefit of open source. And we see that as a clear benefit of Penpot, but for designers, it doesn't say a lot. So you actually just need to be a great design tool to be interesting for them. Who's the audience of Tiger? Only because I love Tiger as a tool. I know we're here for Penpot Fest, but I really do love Tiger. <laughs> so uh, actually, Tiger is a tool that is really built for a cross-functional team, but we are focusing on development teams, so software development teams, although it is used very widely in a lot of other areas. But we have decided that we actually want to focus for both products on the same target segment, which we believe is software development teams that actually use what we call the, the four tools. It's project management tool, Git, chat, and prototyping and design. So it's interesting to, that you mentioned that Pinpot is also looking to extend its wing to like developers. So you have designers, you have developers, you have PM, you have Git, you have chats. Is the team thinking of actually merging these two products at some point and making it like... So we don't think we will merge it, mm -hmm. but we will definitely bring it closer. So one of the areas we are looking at to build integrations between those. We don't want to force people to use both tools. So if we think about integrations, we should also do it in a way that it should also work with other tools. But of course, since we have both tools, we can really think about the use cases and, and think about deep integration and how those can be useful. I have a different question, but just a, it's such an interesting topic that you're talking about because a lot of the tools that are for building software development are not 
focused on designers, are they? The, the ways in which you can provide design artifacts for lots of different kinds of design in like GitHub, just for one example, just to pick on GitHub because we can pick on GitHub because they're big <laughs> and owned by Microsoft. But there's not fantastic ways for designers to utilize these products. And it's so fantastic to hear about a organization that is thinking more about like how do designers want to interact with these tools and how do we want to optimize like designers and developers ways of more so than the roles of design and development but prioritizing the process of design as part of software development is really fantastic to see. Yeah, and I think it links very much to where we come from. So Kaleidos originally was a team of just developers. And what we have seen over time is that the share of designers have been growing in our team. And like a lot of development teams experience is that it's very difficult to create a good interaction, bi-directional between those two roles. And then it's also not supported by tooling. So we actually really try to build a tool that is supporting our teams, right? So I have another question about the value part that you spoke about around designers. And designers typically, broadly speaking, need a design tool that functions as well as it can function for the needs that they have to design. I'm interested to know if you've found any ways of communicating the value of open source that work for designers, because we're kind of in the room where nerdy designers that know the value of like openness and free tools and good licensing and those kinds of processes. But I wonder what's worked in your experience, like trying to communicate open source values to design. Well, actually, we were a bit lucky that Figma was acquired. <laughs> so we didn't need to do a lot of communication ourselves. So everybody started screaming, OK, Adobe, we really need to be careful now. So that gave us a huge boost and really did a lot of the work for us to explain why open source is actually good and what the benefits are. What are those benefits for designers? I just, I think a lot of designers maybe know implicitly like why it's important to have open tools, but I'd love to hear it explained by somebody. Yeah, so I think there's a couple of areas, but I think the most important, you're really the owner of your file. Somehow you're not captured by a, somehow it's an open standard. You can always use your files. With other tools, you never know how long they're going to support it, what they're going to do with it. And then, of course, there's also quite some tools that have it in the cloud. So with open standards and also with the possibility to host on-premise, you're really an owner of your own files. I think that's the very important part. I mean, you need to be a bit nerdy for this, but you can really see the code. You can adapt it. You can, can work with it. So that's another benefit. But I would say for most designers, that would not be like the most important part. What does growth mean for pinpots and for calendars in general? I think that's, that's actually a very interesting question. As you probably know, we are funded. We have investment and at some moment, investors also would like to see some return on that. But for us, it's very important not to focus on generating money too early. And this is also very much a thing about how do you become sustainable as an open source product. So for now, for the coming years, growth means getting more users, getting more active users, getting more people being fanatic users of our tools. So that is for the coming years where our, our growth focus is. And I think it's also interesting to maybe explain a little bit about my growth curve within Kaleidos and, and how I entered and, and, and what I learned. 
I'm not coming from the open source world. And I joined Kaleidos like four years ago, actually working on Taiga. Kaleidos back then was a bespoke software development company that made first Taiga and then Pempot basically in the, our free time. It was like both hobby projects because we thought, okay, how weird is that there are not these kind of tools in the market, so why don't we just develop them ourselves? And Taiga got very nice traction and Kaleidos made some attempts to, to somehow make it grow and make it better, but they were not very successful. And then so they asked me, would you like to join us and pick up Taiga and make it grow and make it bigger? So I thought that was an interesting uh, challenge. But at that moment, I really had zero experience, knowledge about open source. So I, I had heard of open source, but I didn't really know what it meant. So I started doing the, the standard SaaS playbook on how do you grow a SaaS. And I thought it's like there was like a big user base, there was some monetization. And I thought, okay, that should grow easily. Just completely failed. <laughs> I, I tried all the things that completely failed. And then I basically started thinking, okay, I'm doing something wrong. That's clear, right? So I started doing some research. And so how do you do marketing for open source? And actually, you cannot find anything because it's, there's not a lot talked about. So then I did a bit of more research and I found a framework that really helped me. And I think also Kaleido shape our mind on how should we move forward with this if we want to make this bigger. And there's like a model where you say in, in proprietary software or in any product, you create value for your end user. And then you can capture some of that value by asking for money to basically pay for the service you provide. In proprietary software or in other services, what is a very common standard is to say you need to deliver 10 times the value, or in other words, you can do 10% value capture. You can charge 10% of the value you create. In open source, that is maybe 1% or one tenth of a percent. So factor 10 or factor 100 less. Why would you do that as a business? The flip side is, is that you make a kind of a deal with your users and your community that you're capturing very little, only to keep it sustainable, and therefore your community helps you to create value. So you can create value very cheap. You can create a lot of value without a lot of investment by promising to do very little value capture. But that framework basically changed our mind. We tried to be sustainable by doing some monetization and it just didn't work because we were, let's say, too greedy. We did too much value capture and that just didn't work. And so in our strategy and how we look towards monetization, we really say, okay, we need to maximize value creation. We need to facilitate the community to help us grow. And that means that we're really looking for functionality and feature that what we call the power user should always be in the open part, should always be free. So you should maximize the, the possibility for, for active users to use your tool. And some moment we need to do some monetization and we will do that on what we call people that want to control, like a manager or a big company. They want control and they're willing to pay for it. We also say tax the rich. And so when we look at our product roadmap and our monetization strategy, everything that is facilitating your daily users will always be in the open part and things that limit functionality. So 
you can have all features for free, but if you want some users to not use some features, you actually have to pay for that. Which is like the flip side of what you see in other tools. You pay more if you get more features, whereas you actually pay more if you want to limit features. That's very interesting. So I see that the users are like really, really involved in like the adoption of like your products. How does the team empower people who are using your product to like be more involved in making contributions or giving feedback or giving value back to Caledios as a company? I think in the end, you first need to, there's a small group of people that are just fans that they're just happy and they, there's the people actually that you see here. Those are easy. But there's also a lot of people that are kind of, yeah, well, okay, I've heard of it, I'll try it. And then, so it's also that group of people that you need to help and facilitate to adopt. So it's really about understanding the, the little things that they're missing. And that's a lot of analyzing, doing interviews, trying to find out what are the little hurdles that they encounter to not go further. And then piece by piece, you, you try to solve them and get them more excited. Do you have a script that designers in companies or organizations that want to start using open source tools like Pempot can say to their bosses to help them adopt <laughs> tools like Pempot? Hey, actually, we don't have that script. We probably should work on that. What we do believe is that the way to go to adoption is really bottom up. So we try to get little pockets in organizations start using it, getting excited and spread it out and, and get like an oil that mm. spreads out on the water. Like uh, a ripple effect. Exactly. And then as more people are using it, then it gets adoption. So that is really our aim to do it like that and to get excitement from bottom up as well. So as we wrap up, I want to ask you, what has been your highlight of Penpot Fest so far? I'm part of the community team and we're responsible for organizing this. So I would say it's probably not the highlight, but it's like a relief that everything is going fine, <laughs> right? <laughs> so no things going wrong. But I think for me, the highlight was probably the reception of the presentation of new, new features. So if you see a crowd getting really excited about some of the new features being shown, that's always very, very nice to, to see. Is there anywhere on the internet that people can find you when you're like talking about stuff or? I'm actually not that active on, mm. online. You would basically can find me on LinkedIn, but. <laughs> cool. LinkedIn. Yeah. We'll put that link in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us and telling us all about under talked about aspect of how we grow open source, like the business, the strategical aspect and how we can make our products more sustainable because everyone needs money in the world. Sadly, capitalism exists. Thank you very much again and see you around on the next podcast, folks. Bye.